TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. The score! Well, he was here at shoot-around there, you know, and obviously this just came out, so I don't know what the plan is for him. You know, he's he's actually been, you know, like after shoot-around, he's in the weight room, he's lifting, and he's doing things, you know, and has been doing things. And, you know, the other the other, the other day after practice, he was in there having his, his foot worked on. So, like, he's really, really tried and has been really, really diligent about trying to come in as much as he can to try to get, you know, it rectified, to try to get himself back to playing. So much for that. Billy Donovan now has to pick up the pieces as they head toward the deadline, limping in large part, literally and figuratively. The going-nowhere Bulls might finally, finally be forced to actually make a decision on this, even though it's too late, as we all can agree. Jamal Collier covers the NBA for ESPN. He is on Twitter at Jamal Collier. He is on the Circa Sports Illinois hotline, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670 The Score. Jamal, how are you? Doing good, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being available for us, Jamal. I mean, I I know that even, you know, I when we were talking a little bit about it on Friday, the, the, this Bull story, you're around this team a lot. How big of a blow is it for Zach Levine to be injured and and need to have season-ending surgery. You know, it's 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 huge, right? Like on one hand, you look at the on-court performance and it, it doesn't feel like it's going to be sort of significant to where their season was headed in the short term and like as far as his performance on the court, they play well without him. But when you sort of remove him from the equation, and, you know, they're already were having to dip more difficult enough time drumming up a market for him, you know, trade market for him uh, this season. And since they kind of both sides sort of let it be known in the open there that, that a trade, you know, had kind of felt imminent in November. And now you all of a sudden have him out for the season, uh, you know, have him not really is going to finish with a 25 game season as really one of his worst uh, in his career. It just really sort of puts as far as a value in like a, a buzz or as far as Zach's name is probably just at the, the nadar of his value really since probably he came to the Bulls and started to break out in a way. And I think that's just a bummer for the state of the franchise if they were going to try to find a way to dig themselves out of a hole. It definitely um, is a, a more difficult challenge now. What could they get for DeMar DeRozan right now as a rental piece to a contender? It's a really good question because you have to kind of look around and first of all say what team is is in need or in in, in a position where DeMar DeRozan feels like it would be, you know, a, a piece for them to chase a championship. Um, and you know, there's not a whole lot of those teams that sort of need the, a wing like DeMar who needs the ball a score in that way. Um, and then the guys who do, you know, those are the teams that have sort of spent a lot of assets on other things as well so I mean you know it 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 remains to be seen I still think that you know DeMar is playing at a high enough level that if they were able to sort of drum up a a bidding war for him um to a place that he want to go I think that 
you know, you're talking about a first team that needs assets. They could he could generate something. Uh, I still think there there would be interest, but a first, um, like, you know, could they get a first? You know, it you, you some of these protected first. Uh, potentially, you look at uh, a, a package of, of seconds have also been moved to to get some players here. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I haven't. This is all speculation too. You know, I, I don't I think that they have generated a market for him, and I don't think there has been enough real push in that in that you know area to, for them to really see what the market fetch right now. But you know, again, he's an expiring contract, and you have to go take and trade him to a place that he want to stay and want to resign. I think that's the kind of the bigger hurdle there is like, where would DeMar want to go? Because I think he would have some say in ultimately where this decision would be made. Jamal, before you were the, the NBA Bigfoot, you used to cover this team on a daily basis. How weird is it for you to, to look up now, like your life has changed in all of this time, but the fortunes of the Bulls, it still seems like kind of attached to, well, you know, Lonzo got hurt. And, and then, yeah, like that We're still living those same press conferences that you were doing you know, three years ago. Yeah, I, I forget what it was that uh... – um, yeah, I think it was it was something with a, uh, a, a it was a conversation I was having with the podcast or, or something, and we were sort of talking about the last time I had been on that site, and we were like, oh yeah, the Bulls had just put their team together, and it was like, wow, their team is still <laughs> still currently the same as constructed. It's just a, a weird holding pattern to to talk about like wanting to get out of or want, wanting to be competitive or, you know, this team who, you know, that's the idea of, of not wanting to go into full rebuild mode is, is, is this idea of like still wanting to put a competitive team, but they're, they're in ninth place. And they've been in ninth and 10th place now for two years running, you know, not to mention the fact that they didn't play well. after. So you're just, you're just kind of in the same pattern here and like expecting it to get better without doing anything good or bad, right? That just is expecting your position to change. It's just kind of a, a a baffling position, I think, for them right now, and, and I think if nothing else, the Zach injury, you know, is a, is a, it's the latest alarm bell to kind of say take a step back and figure out where exactly this thing is going and start to steer it intentionally in a direction. Yeah, see, that's how I look at it. As it's not, it doesn't materially change their fortunes yeah. because they needed a new build before he got hurt, and they certainly need a new build now. But there are Bulls fans who are clamoring for enough evidence to be placed at the feet of the people in charge that they act on it. And I think then I think that's exactly it. You know, Zach's trade value and, and the, the, you know, the sort of the uh, market for him not being there the last few months, um, you know, I think is, is one thing. And, you know, you look at almost the, the past, you know, mistakes of the past things, holding on to Vooch, you can call them mistakes. You can just call them even decisions necessarily, but sort of like the Vucevic situation and sort of holding on to him at the last deadline, resigning him and looking at how that position looks, you know, a, a year later. And it's, it's kind of good to a guy like, you know, with Caruso. And I understand sort of the want to hold on to a guy like that. But I think when you look around at the sort of the last couple of contracts you've handed out and how well, how quickly, I should say, those have not aged well, that's kind of where I think, you know, the, it just, it just again, it seems like it's just been an alarm bell to say, can they sort of get out in front of one of these decisions and not be left in a place where all of a sudden you're being dealt a bad hand and you're talking about, well, it doesn't make a sense to make a move right now. Jamal, what happened in Milwaukee? Oh, where do you want to start? 
I, I want to try and figure out what, what did Griff do to get on the wrong side of of the yeah. players that they were out there doing a conga line the first night that he wasn't the coach of the team. <laughs> You know, uh, uh, th- those things uh, I, I, nobody has drawn a connection to, <laughs> I will say, in the, in the Bucks organization. Um, it, it, I think that it is it is surprising how quickly, uh, you know, it was evident probably within the first month or first couple of weeks of the season, you know, even aside from Terry Stotts, just, you know, almost how uh, the players sort of were challenging him and, and, and you know, in so many words, thought he was sort of not trying to get him to rise to that occasion. He was not meeting the demands that a championship team uh, and level sort of, you know, that, uh, that they asked for, I guess. Like, it, it was – I think that it came down to that, um, you know, in a way for a first-year head coach where you normally have this learning curve to figure things out, and there just really wasn't one. And, you know, absent all that, he didn't have really any support uh within that organization that was sort of screaming and protecting to hold, hold on to him and i think that sort of started with you know not that Giannis made the decision to run him off but Giannis sort of openly talking about how we need to be coached better we need to be coached harder we need to be organized more you know the bucks are a team that listens to their star and you know you look at drew holiday the dame, dame lillard trade like when Giannis starts making noise they make things happen and when Giannis sort of is speaking up about the product on the floor is not good enough they had to make a decision. Joel Embiid is getting further examination on a tear in his lateral meniscus. And there's one report that says it might be flipped, which is referred to as a, as a bucket handle tear. And as somebody who went through that, it is no fun at all. And I think it's really important to the, as we hear from the doctors to determine if they're going to resect the damaged tissue or if they're going to repair it because one is a much longer recovery than the other. How does this affect the way the Sixers are heading into the deadline? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, on one hand, if Embiid is, is going to be compromised or, or you know, for the rest of the season or at least – you know, even if he's able to play again, if it's something he's going to be dealing with or, or sort of not able to recover from this season, um, you know, I, I I would I would wonder how much that would you know force them to, it, it, you know, they can go two ways: do you sit back and do you wait uh, until you have a healthy Embiid and push your chips in over the summer, or do you sort of give him the most support possible that he doesn't have to do it all? Um, you know, I, I think. You know, until they know that full information, it's kind of hard to know exactly which way they go. But this has been a special season from Embiid, and I think if they can capitalize on this window, it's you know, I think the biggest thing is like this should be sending alarm bells to say, you know, this guy has been awesome, but he's also playing at a size and with an injury history that 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 window is not going to be open forever. And I think like if they can know he's going to be back on the floor, yeah, you got to try to capitalize on the time where he's actually healthy. What do you think about what's going on in Los Angeles? And, and do you think that there is a level of regret that's going on with LeBron right now on how things are? Yeah. You know, it feels like this just is such the yearly cycle. Yes. <laughs> of it, right. Where he, he gets to this point in the season and he looks around and realizes that this team is not going to be good enough and makes enough noise to, to, tr- to make changes. Um, and it just like feels like after we've seen this, you know, the third part of the trilogy, right? Like <laughs> we kind of are all like, wait, we know how it ends. And, it, 
you know, is ultimately not, you know, short of the goal. So that, that I think, think about the level he's playing at and think about all the things he's able to do to not be able to one carry a team has got to be different, you know, for him. And it's also just kind of a realization that like we have probably, and I'm saying that couching it as much as possible because I don't want this to look dumb in a couple of years, but you know, it feels like we've just probably seen the last time that LeBron, that that window sort of was 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 closed uh, here in LA. Like the, the championship window, at least for him, is is you know sort of at least as the lead option is, is sort of just not going to be there. Um, you know, so they're going to you know do something again. They're, they'll sort of make some kind of shakeup, I would assume, over the over the next you know week and, and the, over this month. But uh, it ultimately does not feel like there's not even a move that they could make that would really get them into that upper contention slot in the Western Conference. I want to go back to something you were saying about Giannis. And, you know, Dan and I have been having a conversation about player empowerment as it pertains to Caleb Williams at USC. We've seen at least, I would say, a good decade of player empowerment where people are, are pulling the strings, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes being in front of the microphone. Do you think that NBA players have done a real assessment of what it is that they actually want and how to work with the front office to to make it the best situation overall, not just I have to have this thing because I want this thing? Probably not as a whole. Um, You know, at least it doesn't feel like that that conversation has produced any real results. just because it does still feel like guys are, you know, are sort of individually still acting based off of their wants, their current situation, right? And you can look at James Harden's situation, for example, as as sort of the, the biggest example of that. Um, and I think that as everybody, like players and, and people, their their situations, their demands, their wants change um, and change sometimes on a whim. Uh, sometimes in a way that we don't see coming and sometimes the way their teams don't see coming. And I think that is, is I think, been, you know, the most difficult part of it is, again, you have players and, and sometimes you know, people who are still relatively young sort of making big sways and, and changes, um, you know, just in, a, in sometimes unpredictable ways. Uh, I think that, you know, again, with the Giannis situation, Giannis likes to be the, and I, and I do believe him at this. He's always adamant about I don't want to be the one making the decision um, as far as player trade and 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 demands and things like that. And I, and I do believe at his core, he is not. Um, he doesn't take any joy or pride in that. But he is such obviously an important part to Milwaukee and in the in the the team and then the future of the team, success of the team. That like, you know, one they ask him for an opinion, and he tries to give him an honest one. Uh, and I think that that with Milwaukee and Giannis kind of as the example, I do think that they're sort of working together uh, in those kind of situations. I think in general keeps the team competitive and keeps the, the team pushing in a way to be focused on a, a winning environment uh, as opposed to, you know, the Bucks could have very easily kept this thing to sort of point to the Bulls, to the whole story to the Bulls example, it sort of kept this thing moving and going and even if they thought the team had reached the ceiling last season with the coach with the current roster you know there was no immediate immediate pressure on them to change it other than Giannis I mean I get and, what you're saying about him but but here's the thing if as long as Thanasis is actually taking up an, <laughs> an, an active 
NBA no roster spot. He's and that that's not like you're letting him on the plane or you're giving yeah. him a sweatsuit. He's taking up not a, like a full time roster spot. He is by a mile the worst player in the NBA. And he is, and and he's so something you can't be like. Well, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, you do. They got you know Robin Lopez is also there. And Robin Lopez at the least. Other day. Come on, <laughs> Finesse is is Finesse is, is 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 so by a mile the worst player in the league. It's not even close. I got nothing on that one. That was, that was <laughs> I, I'm stumped here. <laughs> Jamal, thanks so much for joining us, my man. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. That's Jamal Collier of ESPN. I mean, come on. What are we doing? We got some White Sox Stadium uh, opinion that is coming out here, and it may not be exactly what you think from one of the smartest people in the city who writes about such things. And we actually had uh, Joe Sheehan doing a big write-up on the White Sox with not only these uh, small trades that they made, but some strong thoughts about what Jerry Reinsdorf should and should get with this kind of stadium ask. Let's talk about all of that stuff, because there's a lot to discuss when it comes to the 78 and the White Sox. It's next here on The Score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Got clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Bernstein and Hope. Jason Goff is here in studio with us. We go from Zion Williamson, John Morant, <laughs> to spinning on finely tailored suits. Hey. getting yelled at for dancing. On Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. The Bernstein and Home Show at its finest. Yeah, right it's here. what we do, Jay. It's what we're doing over here. The thing that got me was, I thought, okay, great. I knew because a new stadium would have the, the, the skyline behind it, a new neighborhood around it, all those things. Then I thought, well... Guaranteed rate field, White Sox Park, surrounded by 70 acres of parking, you could keep that stadium and build, you know, a neighborhood there. It sounds like Lee Bay, the veteran architecture critic and professor from the Sun-Times, has given this a little bit more thought, fleshed out this idea. Yeah, he wrote more about it, and you can read it at suntimes.com if you pick up the bright one. He, He wrote in part. Sure, the 78 is potentially a more attractive site, but that was helped along by Reinsdorf and the Sox fumbling the one that they have from the original design right down to making the field face southeast away from the downtown skyline the team now covets so. The city and state officials should think long and hard before helping reward the team for such blunders, particularly when it would come at the expense of the south side and the Armour Square neighborhood and nearby Bridgeport that has been the Sox home for 114 years, counting the time at Old Comiskey. Besides adjusted for inflation, the current stadium's 1991 construction price plus the cost of the 2001-2007 renovation amounts to $485 million. That's a fair amount of money, although not in the billion-dollar stratosphere of the current generations of ballparks. Still, With that much cash invested in a neighborhood, 
it seems unseemly to let the team just walk away, no questions asked, especially if there's no plan for the stadium's future. In a statement sent to me last Thursday, Alderman Nicole Lee of the 11th said she is, quote, committed to keeping the Sox at guaranteed rate field, close quote. She also said her office is putting together a working group that is examining improving 35th Street, turning an eye to how we can make it attractive to the team and to the neighborhood as well, close quote. Bay concludes that's a wise move whether the team stays or goes. And then he he writes about what it could be. And it's really good piece. I don't want to read all of it, but I think that he makes some really good points about what the White Sox are asking for and whether or not they should just that their needs should be heated just because they say so. That there are other things to consider and that the city should consider one of the other things I just want to make a note of this because it's in the piece that the White Sox uh, have talked with the mayor's office about this and they've kind of done the same thing with the Bears of oh well, you know we're monitoring it and we're we have an ongoing relationship that sort of thing so just wanted to point that out and let you hear what Lee Bay had to say about it well Joe Sheehan did a full write-up of where the White Sox are, and he was talking about the acquisitions of Dominic Fletcher and Prelander Baroa and what that means. It's hard to really look at, at these deals in any context now because we don't really have it. And a lot of it was part of the valuation of Dylan Cease and what that's going to mean. And then it got into the bigger picture stuff here, which I found more interesting than this year's White Sox team, which is described as one of uh, two 95 lost teams this year and next year, at least according to Sheehan. He says, that brings us to the shadow over all of this. Owner Jerry Reinsdorf. Reinsdorf has spent his 40-odd years in baseball as a labor hawk, a skinflint, a man out of time. In the middle of those 40 years, though, his White Sox fell into a championship. The three postseason series taken by the 2005 team, the team of Guillen and Canerco, Burley and Jenks, are the only postseason series the White Sox have won since Reinsdorf bought the team in 1981. We can take this out further, actually. Since winning the World Series in 1917, the White Sox have won a playoff series in just one of the 106 years since. If Doug Eddings doesn't have a minor stroke in 2005 AC, ALCS Game 2, the White Sox fall behind 2-0 to the Angels in that series, and maybe we never get those three straight complete games to end the ALCS, or the most entertaining sweep in World Series history. That eight-game winning streak triggered by Eddings's error Reset the clock for Reinsdorf and his Sox. With time and perspective, it looks like one of the all-time fluke championships. I disagree with him severely with that interpretation of how things went in 2005. Reinsdorf has been content to sit back and treat the White Sox as an annuity. Since moving into New Comiskey in 91, they've generally bottomed out at 1.5 million tickets sold, and only in recent years did they lose money per Forbes' accounting. The local TV deal is one of the best in baseball. Reinsdorf bought the team for $20 million in 1981, and it's now estimated to be worth $2 billion. 
that's not going to actually mean a raw gain of $1.98 billion if he sells, but the profits will pay for a few good pies at Pequod's. That's Sheehan's editorialization there. In four decades. Why didn't you pick a Southside place there, Sheehan? <laughs> What's wrong with Rick and Benny's? In four decades, Reinsdorf has rarely invested in the team. They did run some top five payrolls in the wake of the title. But over the last decade, the White Sox have had more bottom 10 payrolls, four, than top 10, one. Cots has them 23rd for 2024. More than 10% of that money is going to Andrew Benatendi. On what, is, oh. on what is both A, an overpay, oh and B, the biggest free agent deal in franchise history. Reinsdorf's unwillingness to act like the steward of a $2 billion asset that received a large public subsidy and instead run his team like the middle-class pirates is the biggest reason the Sox are in this mess. What makes this all the more interesting now is that Reinsdorf's going back to the well last tapped in 1989, looking to get the city to help him build a new ballpark a few miles north of the current one the site on which the Sox have played for more than 100 years, as he's undercut the Sox by not letting his baseball people support their own player development efforts. The team's decline is directly related to a lack of depth, depth that could have been purchased for money. Reinsdorf has his hand out looking for a new mall park, this time with plenty of space, 62 acres, for all of the nothing to do with baseball development that pushed the Braves out of Atlanta to Cobb County, the A's to Las Vegas out of spite. Jerry Reinsdorf, 87, maybe legacy shopping, and in doing so, concluded that real estate is more reliable than right fielders. The White Sox are no longer a baseball team to him, but a stalking horse for perhaps a billion dollars or more in public and private financing. He's more likely to get a new stadium than a new pennant. So his time and money will go into buying politicians, not pitchers. Until the White Sox have a new owner, they're likely to be an afterthought no matter how many good trades Chris Getz makes. The politicians are probably cheaper than fielding a, yeah. a, a team of winners. I agree with Joe on his point there. I That's what I think is really interesting about it is that I think that almost every, even like White, San, White Sox fan is like, oh yeah, that would be kind of cool. Like if the White Sox had a new place and it had that view, but there's the other stuff. Like, I'm I'm in that group. I'm in that group of people that says, man, that would be a really cool thing to have. But there's no free lunch. But I, but I can't let go of how did we get here? Why are we in a rush right now to do it? There's nothing wrong with the place that you play in. It's actually one of the things to me that is endearing about the White Sox is where they play in the stadium that they have. It... And then when you add in the idea of none of us should be bending over backwards to give Jerry Reinsdorf a sweetheart deal. And if you want to look at it from the cynical standpoint of what is he given White Sox fans over the last 20 years, if that's the way that you want to frame it, I'm okay with that because I, I think that that's fair for a, a fan citizen of, of the White Sox to be like, eh, maybe we, we don't just run out and allow him to do whatever. That we don't allow him to just dictate what, what will then be him allowing him to change at least two neighborhoods. At least two. And I would venture to say three. Um, but I... I get where Sheehan is coming from, and I largely agree with the 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 concrete evidence of 
a lack of investment by Reinsdorf in a team and something that he's far better at is real estate. And Chicago just saying we're going to let him do what he wants. Because it's something that sounds better because the team is so bereft of hope. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, really? You don't you don't like what's going on? How about if you give me money and I build a stadium that's mostly my benefit? It very much feels like, look over here. Look over here at this shiny new toy that 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 I am going to gift to you as my as my last altruistic feeling of 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 love for the city of Chicago yeah, and but the that, South but, Side. Which is exactly the point that she was making is if you loved us that much, you Get could a team. you could have bought us a, a much better opportunity to win even in the window here when the top line players go down and you've got below replacement level people trying to step in for them because that's all you you would pay. Yeah. I I will also say this is the point that Sheehan didn't make that or or dot that he didn't connect that I m- might feel more comfortable connecting. To me, this does smack of what happened in Atlanta because there is a little bit of white flight to it to me that's a little uh, that's uncomfortable. And while it's only 3 miles, you can you can already tell like how people are even talking about this. That it's oh well, of course you would want to be closer to downtown. Like that would be great. Instead of the the fairly safe neighborhood that it's been in for a long time, it and but there is some of that. It it drifts into a lot of the conversation of it. Well, you know, if you go east of the Ryan. Yeah, you go on the IIT's. Really the Ryan nice what? Campus. Going to its really nice campus. Is that where you're going? You're probably not going over there. You're going to the ballpark every day. So yeah, there's a lot there for for me. Well, the truth is that that has been the un- and that's what the Braves did when they went to Cobb County. Sure, that's like it was, to- that was it was that was unadulterated white flight, and, and the, that has been the undertold story of the White Sox my whole life. And it goes back to why I'm a White Sox fan. It goes back to the, the, my, my origin story as a White Sox fan. Had to do with having, not having parents who were from Chicago, not having parents who came from major league cities, didn't have a rooting interest. and What, Buffalo and Omaha? Omaha yeah. Omaha! Both, both AAA cities. So they didn't care. But as a kid, as a, I fell in love with the White Sox because they were countercultural. They were at night. They were cool, and I said, "Can we go to a White Sox game?" No, 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 we're not going down to the South Side. That's because it was it was crime. Well, it was considered dangerous. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, we're up there in Deerfield. You, and it wasn't until I didn't go to my first White Sox game until my uncle, who went to South Shore High School and grew up a White Sox fan, said, He's "Yeah, like, of course we're going to a White Sox game." Yeah, come to a game. Yeah, come to a game. So we went down and we watched. George Orta and, and, and the crew. I'm like, this is awesome. And then not a hey, hey, goodbye and everything else. And I'm like, I, I got my team. Like, this is, this is the cool team here. But the reason I became a White Sox fan was because of that. I was, I was reacting to sort of the fear of something being dangerous when it really isn't. It isn't. It just isn't. You had made mention of it when we were talking with Parkinson Spiegel about it, about just that, like the, the idea of the, the, the counterculture aspect, and it seems like the White Sox are like, 
we want to run we want to run to being more like the Cubs. That's what bothers me. It's like, well, I guess the Cubs win. I guess they were right. I guess we just got to move up to the the be another gentrifying team. Mhm. And that sucks. That I'm, that aspect sucks. What the, I what I will say whether it's Lee Bay or Sheehan or Alderman Lee, I'm glad that there is it this is all that I wanted. Like this was part of the reason that it was important for me to talk about it on the air and I don't think that I had the power. I have the power to make people think differently about this that ordinarily wouldn't. All I wanted was to see some critical thinking and pushback because what we were seeing from members of the city council was oh yeah totally yep we're totally doing that third war here we go yeah let's go we're gonna create this new neighborhood and they're gonna be the temple of the neighborhood i'm glad that there are at least enough people now to go wait there's other things to consider here other than our experience as people who would go to this. What's best for the city? Yes. That, that's all. I've, my concern is what's best for the city. What's what's best for the city? And are we giving something to, to someone who hasn't given enough? And I know that people will look at the totality of Reinsdorf as an owner. And you say, well, Lawrence, it's seven championships total. And you're right. But specifically in ownership of the White Sox, is there anything in any White Sox fan that says that over the last 20 years, he's given enough? He's given enough where we can go, you know what? He really deserves that new stadium. Knowing the, the type of shenanigans that went on for him to basically blackmail the state to keep the team here in the first place. The, the type of... It's, it's, it's exactly the type of politics that we all say that we abhor. And yet, you're going to let them do it again? Not only let, cheerlead it. Yes. Drive the train to allow for him to do it. I don't, I don't think that that's the right way to go about it. But that's just me. When we come back, some fun with Pedro Martinez on Family Feud. <laughs> where sometimes sometimes honesty, I guess, can get you in trouble. Yep. Next. You're listening to Bernstein and Holmes. I'm still stuck, Dan, in trying to figure out <laughs> what? exactly what it is we do here. <laughs> right? Well, no, that part, I've figured it out. There's fart jokes and mascots. That's all is going on here. Bernstein and Holmes. Fart jokes what? and mascots. Middays 10 to 2. On 670 The School. Getting a lot of talk this week about the big game. And when we do cover it here on The Score, it is presented by Solo Stove. Feel the heat of the world's most popular smokeless fire pit. Solostove.com. Those things are awesome. I was walking down 53rd Street, just getting in a, a good walk after dinner a few nights ago, and one of my neighbors had one. I was like, you know what? I've got some patio room. Perhaps on nights like this where it's in the 30s and 40s and you don't mind sitting outside, that this whole stove would be the move. Just kind of hang? Yeah. Because I have like I have a nice little, it's a little, it's a little teeny tiny postage stamp out front, but it's all concrete. So that could work. 
Don't they do a pizza oven too? They, I believe they do. That I don't have room for. Why That's not? A, your estate. I, like although, I've got room outside. Although technically, I guess I could do it, but that would cover up Russ's really nice windows, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Our, meanwhile, I was getting uh, sent photos last night. Our guy Jeff from One Step, he's got a pizza oven now. Man, he was making me hungry. Yeah. He was making homemade everything, his own, like grinding the cheese himself and, and like homemade sausages. And I, how about this one? How about this? One? I'm like, man. The, the guy Send where. Send me pizza porn. When I passed the solo stove guy, it was, remembers that week, that day last week where it was like 50 degrees and then the fog rolled in and it was like 35 degrees. And, and I was like, typical Chicago, because Chicago gone to Chicago. People were out grilling, and I was like, of course, of course. <laughs> yep. like, it was just nice enough where you're like, you know what? Steaks on the grill. You, sh- you should have seen Montrose Beach yesterday, Lawrence. It was like it was it was May. <laughs> Everybody was out. Everybody. You know that the little that little stair step area around yeah. the back? Yeah, yeah. Filled with people. Guys were out fishing. People were biking. There was a birthday party out there with balloons. I'm telling you, it was like the, it was like an absolute spring day yesterday. And I got in trouble with the owl people. Yeah, you and the owl people need to fight it out. Look, we don't have time to do the Pedro Martinez. We can do it tomorrow. Why? I because do look, it. they're right there. So let's it's get them in show. here, and they'll they'll start their show up, and we can start our afternoon. Parkinson Spiegel are next on the score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Doncic. The Step Back 3. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.